0: This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Michael McElrath, an attorney who spent more than two decades leading international litigation for General Electric's oil and gas division, and until March of 2021, for Baker Hughes Company. He is the co-author of a new book for lawyers working internationally called Negotiating International Commercial Contracts, Practical Exercises. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hey, Ari, good to talk to you again. (laughs) It's a privilege. So tell us about your background and what inspired you to write about negotiating international commercial contracts.
1: I'll tell you, I have to give credit to my co-author of the book, Gustavo Moser, who a few years ago wrote a very interesting book to me about uh, choice of law and international commercial contracts. And I think I sent him a note saying, "Hey, great book! I really enjoyed this. You really ought to take that on the road, make it make it a road show, and do exercise do an exercise book that accompanies your text." And he said, "Oh, that's a great idea. Would (laughs) would you help me do that?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, probably that would be a fun thing to do." And so we. decided ultimately to build this book of exercises, not just on choice of law, but other aspects of negotiating an international commercial contracts. So that's where really started it. I think that it was the idea of doing something that was not just theory, but really practical for people so they could kind of practice, you know, the typical questions that come
0: up when you're negotiating in the international commercial space. Who's the target audience for the book?
1: you know, the target audience here would be, I think, anybody who wants to expand their international legal skills. Students is, could be one group, but I think that would be very limiting. It's lawyers working at law firms, in-house counsel as well. I know actually a few of my former colleagues in-house have been uh, using the book and taking the exercise and adapting it for some of their own self-learning experiences or teaching courses internally. By the way, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. I was actually thinking, since you talked so much about optimizing it, you, but maybe your guests about optimizing and integrating, I almost think like a standard, not standard, but a funny way of explaining the target audience of what this book would do for you would be upgrading the software between your ears to optimize your international externalities, which is another way of just saying how you know helping you become a more confident international lawyer, but upgrading the software between your ears was where the is the audience that this targets
0: why was it important to include practical exercises
1: well to include that's really all it is i mean these are practical exercises with some context around them because you know problems are what lawyers Face right, this is what we have to deal with when people approach us and say, Look, I got a problem, I have a customer or a client in X country, and we're going to be selling or buying some widgets. How should we do this? I mean, one way you can read about this, but another way is to actually do it in practice. And so, this is really a way for people to simulate the types of problems that not only would I say they're like problems that come up in real life, they are problems that come up in real life because both. Gustavo and I have tried to include situations that we've actually seen from contracting, but also from our experiences
0: in dealing with disputes that arise from these types of contracts. How do the guidelines for those exercises help the reader?
1: Actually, one of the it's interesting, you see you refer to them as guidelines. That's what we call them in the book. We don't we don't call them answers because, you know, an, an answer would imply. That there is only one right way to approach different international negotiation situations. And we all know that's not the reality. In the negotiation, there are many different options you can ultimately adopt. And they will lead to down different paths, some of them optimal, some suboptimal, and some not not very good at all. And so what we try to do is to provide guidance to the exercises for people to think about how to approach these types of situations that the problem addresses.
0: You write about unintentional negotiating. How does that impact the process? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it always, it always impacts the process. I think people often, well, first of all, people often don't realize that they have off options, right? I think that people go with what they know is comfortable and they try often, we all, we're human beings. We try to stay in our comfort zones. I can give you some examples of how people may not realize that they're effectively in a situation where they're negotiating or that their options may be bigger than or broader than what they're Thinking of one might be, for example, you take a lawyer, I think you're in New Jersey. So let's take a lawyer in New Jersey who's negotiating an international commercial contract on behalf of a client in New Jersey. And let's say her counterpart is in Singapore and her client in New Jersey is exporting something to Singapore. And so a New Jersey lawyer will say, well, you know, my clients in New Jersey, we're the ones we're selling. I want to make sure that, you know, I I protect my clients' rights. I know how to do that under New Jersey law. And so she may insist on on New Jersey law, not realizing that, you know, there might actually be more out there that she could consider. The Singapore party that's buying may say, well, I'm going to try to insist on Singapore law. And it may come down to just, you know, a back and forth where they, you know, one side, just because they're more insistent, will get... What they want. But really behind that, there's the question of which of those might actually be the better solution to fit the client's interests. And if you think about this, I mean, while the New Jersey lawyer is most comfortable with Singapore, let's say, and that's not Singapore, with, with New Jersey and even the New Jersey courts, right? If you're a New Jersey lawyer, you'd say, well, I prefer to have disputes resolved in here in New Jersey, <laughs> under New Jersey law. But if you don't have advanced payment guarantees, and let's say let's assume you don't, and you don't have, for example, a letter of credit, and all your client really wants to make sure they get out of this contract is that they get paid. Well, you might be better off actually accepting Singapore courts. You might also think of arbitration in a neutral country, but you might actually think that, you know, going with what the other side wants is, is maybe the better option for your client. And maybe you could give up and accept Singapore courts and Singapore law in return for maybe more favorable payment terms or something else. So the point being, there are lots of different options. I can give you another one where people, I think, often don't realize they're negotiating. And this comes up, I think, in a number of your podcasts, for example, you talk about the high costs of discovery, the company often litigation. And and that's true with a lot of American-based litigation. But when you contract internationally, you actually have a choice. I mean, you don't have to opt into the American litigation system. You can choose, for example, to have arbitration in Paris, and you can choose to retain if you want. A law firm, it's in Europe. It doesn't have to be in France, or it could be an American law firm. But those sorts of choices, those are choices. I think people often don't realize that they have a choice. And by virtue of which decision they make, they may find that they don't actually have any costs of discovery because in lots of parts of the world and lots of arbitration practice, for example, we don't have big issues of e-discovery. You can, but you don't necessarily have to have it. Again, that's a choice that may not be obvious to
0: someone until they find themselves in this situation. How has the pandemic impacted international arbitration?
1: Well, I think that we have a lot of data on that, actually. The data says that it's uh, all of the, the international arbitration institutions, the ICC, the LCIA, the Singapore International Arbitration Center, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, and others are all reporting a, a rather substantial increase in international arbitration. So I think we've seen the numbers go up in this past year. Look, I don't know that you know. Cause, correlation is not the same as causation. So I you know, don't know that the pandemic necessarily caused this increase, but I think the inference one is rather strong there, that there, there does seem to be a, a rise that in some way relates to the pandemic. What I can say is in terms of the practice of international arbitration, uh, at least in my experience, I think we're seeing a lot more flexibility. Obviously, things are being conducted rather than you know, people flying all around the world to get together in a hotel room somewhere to hold a hearing or a hearing center somewhere around the world, whether it's in you know, New York or London, Singapore, Paris, or wherever. We've been having to do this all online. And I think that's obvious. I think people, you know everybody's doing things now through virtual means. But what does that mean for arbitration? Well, what it means is that the process, I think, has become more flexible I think arbitrators and parties and counsel realize it's easier to kind of get online, to to discuss points of procedure or, or issues that may arise and I sense that the process of arbitration is becoming more conversational. It's more interactive than it was before, which I think is a good thing. One other, I think, side benefit, and again, this is just my perspective, but I think that international arbitration as a result of the pandemic is also becoming a bit more diverse because it's. I think it's leveling the playing field a little bit. People are all working from home. And so we're all allowed to kind of reach out and use resources no matter where they are. It's no longer an issue for people to you know, have barking dogs or you know children screaming in the background because we're all doing it.
0: So I think that that's also been a, I think a positive development that we're seeing from, from arbitration. Your book received a number of endorsements from law professors. How do you see it being used in law schools?
1: Well, yeah, I don't think there's any other book that does what we do in terms of providing these sort of practical exercises for international contracts. So I could see it being used for classroom exercises. Could be used for self study. I know that um, we've had some expression of interest from participants in arbitration competitions, like the uh, the VIS, the V, the uh, VIS, it's the VIS. That's a person's name, but the VIS moot for students and teams that are that want to practice and kind of in. in uh, let's say improve their international dispute resolution and contracting
0: chops before they go to a competition. How do you expect international arbitration to evolve in an increasingly comfortable remote environment?
1: Well, you know, so this is, you know, this is a question Ari, that actually comes up a lot where people are, I think people in the field are asking what's gonna remain and and what's gonna go back to the way it was before. after the pandemic is over. I'm a bit of a different mindset. I think that, well, of course, there will be some parts of the practice where people will want to get back and have physical hearings and physical meetings together. I think a lot of the practice has just changed forever. I think, you know, a lot of what is being, has used to be done in person will now be done online. It's just more convenient. It's cheaper, but it's just easier for people to do things. And we realize now that it works. I really think the question that we need to ask ourselves, and I think your your question kind of poses this, is what further changes might we see? What more might we see as a result of the fact that people can get together much more easily? One of those might be, you you might see that um, cases will be broken up a bit more rather than everything being scheduled with one big hearing towards the end. You might see uh, cases being decided a little bit you know in bits and pieces along the way or you may see that a an actual and I and I've seen this in a number of cases where the procedural timetable that's the schedule for an arbitration it doesn't really even get developed until maybe after some initial Main submissions are presented to the arbitrators, and you really now understand well, you know, how complex is this dispute? Do we really need to have a two week hearing, or you know, do we need to have experts, or do we even have any experts? I mean, often you don't know that until you're into the arbitration. So, I, I think that we will continue to see more changes. I think the pandemic will ultimately be seen as a catalyst for change that's kind of been coming along uh, over the last few years, but it's been accelerated as a result of the pandemic.
0: This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Michael McElrath, an attorney who spent more than two decades leading international litigation for General Electric's oil and gas division, and until March of 2021 for Baker Hughes Company. He is the co-author of a new book for lawyers working internationally called Negotiating International Commercial Contracts. Practical exercises. Mike, thanks so very much, and I'm wishing you the very best of luck with your new book. Thank you, Ari. Great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit reinventingprofessionals.com or arikaplanadvisors.com to learn more.